Katie. I'm Erica. And this, and this is, is Book Talk. Hi, Katie. Hi, Erica. Welcome to Book Talk. Book Talk is your weekly podcast book club. And this week we are reading the second section of Honor, which Katie is going to summarize what we just read. So we get deeper into both stories this week as Smita travels to Mina's hometown in rural India. Smita interviews Mina, meets her mother-in-law, both of her brothers, and has a conversation with the head of the village. She's overcome and upset throughout by the violence, the horror of what they've done, and mostly how strongly they believe that it was the right thing to do. In tandem, we're also learning a lot about Mina and what happened to her and her late husband. We learn how she met Abdul, how they fell in love. And also how they believe that love could be enough to change things and how their daughter could be a sign of the new India. It feels this whole section like a buildup to what's going to happen. So I'm a little bit nervous about the amount of plot and what's going to go down in this next section. What did you think about this section? I feel like the first time we talked about how there wasn't a lot of plot in the first section, but it was really just the scene setting. And I feel like we got that again in this section. So what did you think while you were reading it? I feel the same way as what you described. There's not to me there's not like an overt amount of tension I guess what we're waiting for is for the verdict to come down but it seems pretty obvious that it's just going to be not guilty I don't know I think they're setting it up for it to be guilty um because I feel like what we're what we're being set up for is all these people think 100% not guilty would be what we expect of this community and this culture right that they find him not guilty and I think what's going to happen my prediction based on nothing is that they'll find him guilty and the people will be so upset. And I'm nervous about what they will do because they are so steadfast in their convictions that what they did was right. And that everybody, I mean, they're not even, they're not even hiding it. They're like, of course I told them to burn down the house. And of course they did it. Like she brought, you know, dishonor to our family and our village. So of course we did that. So I think if they are confronted with having to face their actions by a court, I don't know what they're going to do. One of the challenging parts from this book, too, is that, like, Mina is very sympathetic as a character. We get to know a lot more about her and her relationship with Abdul, which is very endearing. You're rooting for them. We love them. We love them. The scene Their with the mangoes. With the dropping of the handkerchief. I like, was Ooh! obsessed. It reminded me a little bit of A Woman in Salt. But yes, I was like, look how they met in the kind of the factory and in an un, in a love they weren't allowed to have. But yes, the handkerchief and the mangoes, I was like, okay. <laughs> Which we love, but we sort of already were bought in. Like, there's just no way you could not be rooting for her and against her brothers. And that sort of just continued in this section where her brothers are still unlikable. Their motives are not sympathetic at all. They are terrible and they should be found guilty. That part also, I felt that we learned a lot about the motivations for these characters, but it wasn't anything challenging what we already believed just on its face about this story and who was a part of it. Do you think you're learning a little bit more about Smita in this section? Because I still feel like her story is a little bit hidden, but I think we get inside of her head a little bit, especially in that last scene when she's visibly upset in the bathroom. I think I like Smita a little bit more, but not entirely. I guess I'm also not really educated about the role of journalism. And that seems to be a tension that she's experiencing. I think Thridi also used to be a journalist. 
So she knows intimately this challenge of interviewing people who you don't agree with or interviewing evil people and trying to get the story out of them. I don't know that. And so like she's really frustrated that she can't get the right line of questioning or get the right answers out of them. But I don't experience that tension or I don't understand it. I feel like she got a lot of good quotes. But I'm also like, are you recording this? This seems important, right? Well, she gets a lot of good quotes. And at the end, I feel like every time she gets a lot of good quotes, whoever she's interviewing just kind of like ruins it by saying, you know, none of that's true. You knew I was joking, right? And if you say that, I'll deny it. And so he's kind of like undermining everything that he gave her. So he's admitting to it and he's proud of it. But then he's like, just so you know, you can't use any of that. So I do think it's hard. I definitely empathize with Mohan in this section because you're so angry and you're so like shocked by what these people are saying and believing that you just want to like scream at them. And I feel like he doesn't have this journalistic sense either. So he's just like, oh, really? You can see into the past? Does she have a phone? <laughs> like, You don't know her number? That's so weird. I thought you oh, were all knowing. I thought you could see into her house. That's so weird. I thought you had a mobile phone to God. So what are you doing? Like, you can't do that? I'm sorry. And she is like, Mohan, shut up. Like, I want him to corner himself. I want him to talk himself into this. I do not need you to like try to push this story along. You're just making him clam up. Um but I'm sure she's glad she has Mohan with her. If I put my deconstruction intellectual hat on, I can see how both Samita and Mohan are stand-ins for us as the reader, where Samita is trying to put together the facts of the case. She's the outsider who's sort of coming into this place, this rural village, and trying to understand the players and what their motives are. And at the same time, Rohan that's his name, right? Mohan. Mohan. At the same time, Mohan is the one having the emotional reaction to this that we as the reader are also having, which is like, oh, really? That's insane. What you just said is insane. And that is unacceptable. And that is not a reason to do what you did. And I would never do that to a sibling. So there are two sort of stand-ins for the reactions that we're having where we're trying to figure out what's happening in this story, but we're also having a very strong emotional reaction to it. He's also kind of reckoning with what he thinks about India and he in the beginning was, you know, the biggest fan defending to the end Indian, Indian culture, et cetera. But now I think he's kind of seeing the other side of it. At one point she says his innocent is pierced. His innocence is pierced. Like she has burst the bubble of what he thought and the India that his privilege has allowed him to experience. She's kind of broken that. And so I don't, this ends with her walking to Mohan's room. And I feel like they're both kind of going through a deeper understanding of what this this research study or, or talking to Amina and her brothers has meant for both of them. I hope they have a deep conversation before they just hook up in his hotel room. <laughs> I think they will. There's a lot that they have to talk about and to talk through. It reminded me of how we feel about America. And I do think some of your feelings for your country, like you have to love it despite its complexity. And despite its contradictions in order to like believe in its goodness mm -hmm. almost, but I'm not one to feel strongly about being an American or America as a project. But do you feel strongly? I feel that way about, I mean, when, as you were saying that I was like, is that how people feel about New York? Like you yeah. have to, you have to love it and you have to embrace it. But that also means that you have to embrace the parts that are not good and the things that come with that. So you might not feel that way about America, but do you think you feel that way about New York? Definitely. Perfect comparison. And 
we recorded last week's episode before the incident on the subway in Brooklyn. Obviously, struck close to home for me in many ways, metaphorically and literally. And yeah, you sort of have to realize that to love the good, you also have to accept the bad and maybe not accept it, but it is part of it. It's part of the whole thing. Nothing is perfect. No area is perfect. No culture is perfect. And if you want to want to fix it, you have to love it in spite of the shortcomings. I think sometimes it is easy to live in our bubbles, whatever that means, whether it's religiously, culturally, politically, geographically, to live inside these bubbles and to believe that and to only see the good, right? Or to believe that your city or your country or your political party is better, is right. And I think that when you read books like this, it does cause you to have maybe empathy, but also just maybe to critically think more about your own beliefs. And, you know, I think multiple times in this story, Smita says something about, you know, women being like violence at the hands of men, et cetera. And Mohan looks at her and she's like, I mean, I know this happens in America too. Like, I know that what I'm saying is not only happening in this rural town in India. So we get to see her kind of working through that also. We also talked about this last week without knowing how real that was going to get, which is like how when we feel safe and how we feel safe. And in this case, this is an act of violence, but it was almost predictable with the way that they had reacted to her throughout this experience, the way they've reacted to Mina as she's becoming more independent, finding herself, running away, all of those things. And that seems shocking and terrifying to us. But then on the other side, what I experienced in the United States is like people just commuting to work, doing nothing, a completely random act of violence, which I'm sure seems way more terrifying to someone because it's so like random and unpredictable. And that kind of thing happens all the time in the U S with like no good explanation for why it happened or why New York, why that subway station, like there just is no story, at least that we know of right now, there's no like clear pattern. And that is terrifying. Where in this case, they're like, it's actually logical to us why we did this. Right. We had to to protect our honor. I think what it reminds me of how they're using religion and honor to justify what they did, how we kind of all do that. Not all of us, but there are many instances of this. People want to believe in something or be a part of something. And I don't know. You can see how people get sucked into the fear mongering of it, right? Like this is what's right and this is what you have to do because this will affect not only you but your family but your village and you have the power to fix that. And even if you think of like religion here or political parties here, it's the same thing. It's the story you're being told that you end up believing I was talking with someone yesterday about somebody saying a belief that's like in direct opposition to what I believe. And I was like shocked that they just said it out loud. Like it was no, I'm not even going to repeat it here because it's not worth it. But like said something that I was like, that's not at all true or right or empathetic or whatever. But they believe it with such conviction because they're being constantly, they're like in a bubble but being reiterated too. Um, So I don't think that you necessarily empathize with the brothers at all like of what they did but I think that you can want to change the bubble that they're in that has made this line of thinking okay and has allowed them to believe that what they're doing is right I don't know it's complicated yes to all of the above I think what Thridi is saying too is or one of the things she's alluding to at least 
to me is that it is not religion necessarily that made the brothers do this. Religion was the excuse for being very unhappy, for being very poor, uneducated, largely illiterate, having a bad season in your crop. And the excuse given to them by the police, or is it the He's like the head of the village. The head of the village is that like, oh, it's because of your sister doing this thing. It has nothing to do with you. It's like she's angered the gods, basically. And so the right thing to do is to right this wrong, and then everything in your life will be fixed. And I don't think that all religions do that. I don't think that's what she's saying. But I do think this is often a way to make people okay with not having what they need and not being taken care of is that like it's God's plan this is God's will or like I guess you just didn't have the right faith or else none of this would have happened you know it's this like weird justification of I think the brothers are very unhappy depressed have issues with alcohol have a lot of anger have trauma that they haven't reconciled and instead of dealing with that complexity they're given a reason which is like well it's your sister's fault and if you just do this it will all magically get better and I feel like let me think how I want to say that because I do remember that part of it but I don't remember them like blatantly doing like the religion like this will fix all of your problems but I do think it was this community they lived in where women were not allowed to work outside the home or have an opinion. And the only reason these brothers are okay, which is obviously upsetting them is because their sisters are able to work and get money for the family that they're then using spending and controlling. Um, but, and I think that that is the issue, but I also think it's more than just like they're unhappy and they're depressed. I think they've also grown up inside of a culture that says this is where the most important thing, which he says, the head of the village says too, like the number one thing that I need to do is control our women. Like that's what I need to do. And so they've grown up in this culture where it's like sometimes he says awful things about how to control women and how often you have to like beat them or whatever he's saying. And so I think there's also just this cultural difference there that isn't like they are, they are depressed. Her brother does you know, he is struggling with alcohol, he, but he also just fully believes this as part of what it means to be a family in their culture, maybe because of religion, but also just because of, of the community that they're growing up in. Um, and it's kind of scary to see how his feelings towards Mina change as he grows up inside this community, becomes a man. And we see that in this book, I read a woman is no man. She falls like she meets her husband. He's very kind of quiet and reserved but then he sees it as his duty to essentially control her and he's like abusive as well um but I don't think it's religion it's just like that's what you have to do and this is what you're supposed to do and you're ruining everything by jumping outside of the lines and you're supposed to stay in the lines um and it's this power and control thing so I think it's all the same it's not necessarily religion that justifies it for people across the board it can be religion it can be community it can be so many other things that make you part of something larger that help you to justify whatever actions you need to take and people promise you it will get better. It's much easier to blame someone else or something else for like your own problems. And I think that's like layered on top of the gender dynamics. I don't want to like defend, seem like I'm defending the brothers in any way at all. But I do think there's also a sense that we have that like our moral code of like what's important to us is very essential and is like universal. 
But our sense of morality is so culturally defined and very specific to our upbringing and our education and the people around us, like you're saying, the bubble that we live in. It's really hard for us to see how what they did is in any way a moral act, but they have been convinced that it is, that like it is immoral to associate with someone of a different faith. There's also another layer to this that I don't think she's going to get into, but like the partition which defined India, defined it as a Hindu state, and the line was drawn with the partition between the Hindu side of India and the Muslim side of Pakistan. And that was a choice, not by the people who lived there, but by the Great Britain to say, like, here's the line that we just made up. Everybody get to your sides now. And so a lot of this like strife also that exists between these religions, we also have to remember is like very culturally specific and like a result of colonialism, which is like a story I never, I never heard about the partition. I had never understood how this all happened. It's a fascinating history. It's very sad and tragic because the people with different religions were living happily together in this area and then because of the partition and the frantic sorting that happened there there just created this like natural strife and competition between two groups who were not the ones who were not in competition competition. make the decision ah one of the quotes that smita says is that the innocent always pay for the sins of the guilty I don't know if I actually agree with that. I think it's probably that the powerless tend to pay for the crimes or the sins of the powerful. And this is an example of that. Like, this is so, this violence that happened, we now know from this section, I think that was the big reveal. The The violence that happened in this section was basically at the at the behest of the, the head of the village, who was like, we cannot allow this. And this is the only way to deal with it. And basically told the brothers what to do. And then now has the brothers under this like insane loan for a loan, like a payday loan place with a 30% interest rate. So they're clearly now indebted to him and his story, the lead of the, the head of the village, completely indebted to him and his story, backing him. He owns them, basically. Yep. I mean, he did that. He knew exactly what he was doing. One other quote we both wrote down was the most dangerous animal in this world is a man with wounded pride. Why did you write that down? What did you think about it? This quote, I think, helps us understand the title of the book, which is about honor. And it's sort of this like justification that they have that it's for the honor of the family. It's for the honor of us. It's for the honor of India, et cetera. When really it's like it's your personal feelings that were been, like were attacked. And it's the pride of these men who refuse to be emasculated by the women in their lives. And that truly is the most dangerous animal. I mean, I fully agree with yeah. it. I think the that pride frames the story and... of these brothers too. The most dangerous animals is a man with wounded exactly. pride. Like that is what is probably the head of the village is telling them to do it, but what's powering them to actually go through with it and then to stand by it too is this, is their wounded pride. And that is not to say that women are not prideful or people who are non-binary are not prideful either, but I think the violent reaction to someone challenging the pride of a man is responsible for a lot of the violence that we see, which statistically is mostly perpetrated by men. I think that women don't have the reaction to violence to a challenge of their pride. We probably apologize. 
when our pride is challenged. Yeah, no, totally. But again, this is I'm not I'm not a like essentialist about gender. I think it's it's all culturally defined. Yeah, great. Next week we're reading chapters 20 through the end of 31. books did you read what have you been doing oh my god no let's start with you and your litany of books that you read because you were on vacation okay I was on vacation I wrapped up a bunch of books and read some new ones I had talked previously about Suli which is the John Gisham book my dad dropped off and then asked me every day if I'd finished it yet uh which is pretty on brand (laughs) so I did finish it it was kind of unlike any of his other books and I do it's an Erica type book and that it just ended in mostly tragedy um which you know from the beginning like when you read the cover of it you're like there's no way this ends kind of happy but um I did enjoy reading it wasn't you know my favorite book of the year but I liked it then I read a completely opposite book called live laugh kidnap and I do not remember what tiktok or instagram or book influencer told me to read this book um but I read it really quickly and it was funny it like incorporates this kind of cult that's in, it's definitely a cult in Montana competing with an ultra religious group. That's not a cult, but like a mega church. Um, and so there's MLM schemes, there's young love, there's a kidnapping, all of this you can find out from the book, but I thought it was really good and interesting to read about all these different perspectives. I'm still not sure if it was a young adult novel. It might have been, um, but I'm also always interested in MLMs and cults, et cetera. So recommend if you are as well for an easy little beach read. Um, then I read We Were Liars by E. Lockhart in a span of a day and a half. This um, girl that I know before I read the book a couple of months ago messaged me and said, oh, my God, did you read We Were Liars? I audibly gasped in the car. I could not believe that happened. She didn't tell me anything that happened. And I was like, no, I haven't read it, but I will. And when I got to Dallas, my friend David was like, here's a book for you to read. This one's crazy. I was just like, okay, I guess I'm reading it. I apparently the twist is based off of, or is similar to a famous movie twist. I'm obviously not going to say which one. So, and he didn't tell me which one either at the end when he told me what movie was based off of, I was like, I've never seen that. So I was fully shocked, um, at the twist. Um, and also actually gasped. I was like, I cannot. So it was good. It got me, uh, people had a lot of feelings about the writing style. She uses a lot of metaphors um, and some kind of poetic writing entwined in. I really liked it. I thought that it was, it gave you a full illustration and picture and kind of enveloped you into the story. So I loved it. The writing style in the book. If you need something to read that will distract you from everything else for a day, pick this up. Sounds like a potential for a one-off episode. No, I don't know. Okay, I feel like it's kind of a. Um... Let me think of how to explain that. It's more of like a thriller horror story. Okay. So not that there aren't deep themes to talk about it, but but mostly it's like an experience that you read and you experience it. Then you need to like dissect it. Interesting. I okay. can't think of something other way to describe that to you without you just reading the book. I'm gonna read it. I want to read it. You have to read it. 
The last book I read was Black Buck. Five stars. Loved this book. Highly recommend. It is this description is going to sound weird. You should just pick up the book. It is part sales manual, part coming of age story of a young black salesman coming up in a predominantly white company in Manhattan and the struggles that he faces. In a couple of interviews, Mateo says that this book, people called this book satirical or that it was mostly satire. He says that he wrote it in earnest with some satirical parts to it. And then when people say it's absurd, it's because they don't have that experience. It's interesting and dramatic and funny I couldn't put it down. You should pick it up. I can't even, I truly can't even describe this book. I still feel like I don't know what happened while reading it, but it was so good. So good. I do think the last thing I I do want to say this is there are scenes that are hard to read. This kid is being basically hazed at work and it's, it's hard to read people who are being blatantly racist to him. And, but it is what happens. And it's probably maybe some parts exaggerated, but mostly written in earnest. And I think it's important to read. There are so many side stories that are well-developed. Like, it was amazing. What type of company does he work for? He works for, I had to think about that for a long time. What kind of company is it? He works in the beginning, the company that picks him up and he gets kind of his start is a sales company called Someone. Um, and they basically pair people with, they call them assistants, but basically therapists who are unlicensed to help them. It seems like better help without licensed therapists, if you know what better help Got is. Got it. Yeah. Fascinating. But they're okay. selling a vision, baby. Oh, I'm excited. That sounds so good. I can't wait to read it. So good. I read one book. It was on the longer side. So, okay. So don't come for me. Uh, <laughs> the book that I read was called Disorientation by Eileen Sho Chu. I think that's how you say her name. It was about a PhD student who is in the eighth year of her program trying to write her dissertation. And through stalling uh, her research on this particular Chinese poet, she stumbles upon sort of a mystery and pursues that head first as a way to sort of procrastinate actually writing her dissertation, which is hilarious. It was a lot. (laughs) This wasn't too close to home for you. Oh, I was like, I'm procrastinating writing my dissertation by reading, by reading this, book this book about procrastinating doing your dissertation. Hilarious. It was not what I thought it was going to be. You might have seen the cover of this book. It's like hot pink and all of the like clothes in the room are sort of like suspended. I think I was expecting more of a theory of disorientation or like a book that's like sort of surreal. And it's not really this. This is like a really funny plot-driven analysis of what it's like to be an Asian American and to work in academia, another predominantly white institution, and how people profit off of a certain idea of China and people from China and Asians in general. The main character is not even Chinese. She's from Taiwan, so she's Taiwanese, which is also a recurring theme throughout the book and she is reckoning with her Asian-ness and being Asian-American and what that means to her and how she has ignored that part of herself and even fought against it in other people but it is actually pretty lighthearted. I liked it okay I would give it like four out of five stars I'll take it a four out of five star I feel like this hopefully means we're on a good track to reading some good books I feel like for a minute there we were it was a little bit rough yeah. yeah. I texted my friend who was like, do you read anything you like ever? 
And I said, I just want you to know I just read three five-star books in a row. So rude. <laughs> so I showed you. <laughs> I'm also reading Night Bitch, which was oh, I a almost recommendation that up. from Tori. I can bring it to you after I'm done. Great. Uh, I think if you're ambivalent about having a child, you should not read this book because this book will pretty much convince you that, like, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> it is a modern day horror Kafka-esque story of this mom who's like withering away and losing her mind and slowly becoming a dog. It, it's it's horrifying. Her The portrayal of motherhood in this book is pretty horrifying. And like the dad who's completely detached and he's a consultant. So he's traveling during the week and she's kind of really loves her son and loves her relationship with him, but feels like the rest of her is dying or transforming in some way into this dog we'll see where it goes i i like it so far but it is pretty dark so i kind of have to take it slowly well we were in the bookshop just like reading i I went to a bookshop and read a bunch of like i read the first chapter or the dust cover of like 30 books in one sitting to see what i wanted to buy and i was like i keep being drawn to these books about motherhood and i'm not doing it i'm on a motherhood book break right now like i'm if it mentions motherhood if it's about a mother like relationship in any way I'm not doing it so I didn't buy any books but I did pick up night bitch and I was like oh not doing it it's about motherhood like I feel like all we've been reading about is it lately I'm like I've I need a a breather palate cleanser if you will Mm. yeah but yeah okay all right okay bye Book Talk is made by me, Erica Bailey, and Katie Cheney, with production support from Dan White. Our theme music is by Dan White. We'll see you next week. Also, everything that you wrote down, sorry, everything you wrote down, I literally wrote in mine. Look at us. We're so simpatico. And the other the picture I took a quote of, or the quote I took a picture of is, the world is filled with people who are adrift, rudderless, and untethered, and two, the innocent always paid for the sins of the guilty. So literally never mind. <laughs>